Morning, church. Uh, Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Titus 1, if you have one. I'm going to be reading from, excuse me, verses 5 to 9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is the reading of the word. Um, I am so grateful, so thankful, friends, that that I have grown up in a church and I'm now raising my boys in a church that is built on the word of God. When we were singing that song earlier, you, know, you have the words of life, the words of life. You, you realize that it's actually true. <laughs> that's not just a vain hope. Or I've looked for life all week and who knows, maybe it'll show up here. You can know it's here. We, we can open this word. We can pray the word. We can sing the word. Not, we don't worship the word, but, but because the God with whom we have to do has perfectly and clearly and wonderfully revealed himself in his word. So grateful to be in that kind of church. If, if you ask a non-Christian friend, uh, side note, I hope if you're a believer, you have a lot of non-Christian friends. God's called us to that, to be in the world, but not of the world, to love the world. But if if you ask a non-Christian friend, what keeps them from becoming a follower of Christ? Maybe you've done this. I think there's a good chance that at some point in that conversation, hypocrisy will make the list. And it tends to cut two ways, in my experience. Um, First, non-Christians don't want to be around hypocrites. They, they can tell stories of professing Christians in their family or in their work who, who said one thing but did another. They don't want to be around hypocrites. They, they also don't want to, to become a hypocrite. You know, I've heard this too. I, they, they know they don't have their act together and feel like to, to darken the door of a church like this, they would have to pretend they have their act together. They don't want to be around hypocrites. They don't want to become hypocrites. But, you know, when this this whole topic of hypocrisy in Christianity comes up, there are two things that have to be said. The first is this. If if we're being honest, we are all hypocrites on some level. For for Christian and non-Christian alike, hear me if you're in that category, there is a gap of some kind between 
the person you say you want to be and the way you actually live. If hypocrisy is the charge, we're all guilty. Remember that. But second, the the fact that, that we all struggle with hypocrisy on some level doesn't mean the battle is irrelevant or that Christianity is worthless as long as there's some kind of gap that you can see in the church or in your Christian friends or family between what they say they believe and the way they live. No, to the contrary, hear me, friend, the banner over the only road that leads home to heaven is not we're all a hot mess. It is Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. As the people of God, what do we do in response to hypocrisy? In us. We lament hypocrisy and we make every effort to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel we confess, right? To to live in a way that's consistent with the truth. Godliness is a hard fight. It's a really hard fight, but it's a good fight, friend. It's, It's the best kind of fight. And Paul's letter to Titus is a tremendous help in the battle because Titus is all about recognizing and living out this connection. Caleb prayed about this a minute ago between faith and life, between doctrine and practice. If if hypocrisy says, believe the gospel of grace and don't worry about good works. Titus says, here's how the gospel of grace actually produces a life of good works. It helps us here. And and the whole book really reminds us that, that there's a kind of life that accords with sound doctrine and a kind of life that does not. There's a way of living that's consistent with the truth and there's a way of living that's not. I think the central theme of the whole, we saw this last Sunday, shows up in the very first verse of the letter. Paul says, I've spent my entire ministry life laboring for what? Among other things, the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. That's his mission. That's been his mission. And he's not alone in that mission because Titus has a similar mission. So starting in verse 5, Remember, this is a letter from Apostle Paul to his apostolic delegate, Titus. He's giving Titus instruction. Titus, here's the specific work that you need to do, pal, on the island of Crete, among the churches on the island of Crete, to help them grow in godliness. To to help help them close that gap between truth and life. Between doctrine and practice. Titus is a book graciously given to us to help close the gap. Christian, the role God has given you in the church, maybe you remember this church, the role God's given you in this church today, may be very different than Titus. I'm I'm looking out at you all, and I do not see any deputized apostolic delegates in the room. 
Um, the man preaching to you is not an apostle or an apostolic delegate. But I would argue, even though our, our particular role in the church might be different than Titus, that our spiritual challenge is the same. Exactly the same. How, how can we grow in the knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness? How, how can we become a people of integrity, not hypocrisy, who are zealous for good works? Look, look at verse 5. This is why, this is why I left you in Crete, Paul says, so that you might put what remained into order. How, how many of you love being organized? Anybody with me? Okay. Yeah, John, you definitely are. <laughs> yeah, that's, I'm actually surprised. Um, I thought I might see a few more hands. But in, in case you um, are wondering, well, how do I know if I am? Uh, moment of self-disclosure. You, you know you love being organized if peace floods your soul when your sock drawer is organized by color. Uh, that may or may not be hypothetical. Um, or you know you love being organized when, when the garage is not just a place for stuff to be dumped. It's a place where everything has to have its place. Where the kitchen sinks, not just the place where food scraps can dwell. It's, it's a place that must be immaculate. That's me on multiple levels, but that's not the kind of order Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about minding your P's and Q's or, or a personality. I just love everything kind of buttoned up thing. No. He, listen, he's talking about our patterns of life, our practices, our, our habits of relationship, a, a way of living that's consistent with the gospel. Why does that matter? It matters, friend, because, because Christianity isn't just a set of beliefs that, that you can walk out any old way you want to. That's not Christianity. That, that, that's the expressive individualism of our age. Christianity says in, in your workplace, when you're at work, godliness looks like something. Christianity says if you're married... Godliness in that marriage relationship looks like something. There's, a, there's not just a, a spiritual essence to the Christian life. There, there's a behavioral order, a visible pattern, a standard of conduct. And where, where it's known and cherished, the gospel of grace will change how you think and what you feel and what you choose to do. And to insist on that, that there is a biblical order to the Christian life, is not to introduce legalism into the church. Rather, it is to mark out the only path of spiritual integrity for the church. And the churches in Crete, <laughs> Quinn's going to preach on this next Sunday, they were a hot mess. <laughs> they were pretty disordered. Look at verse 12, chapter 1. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then Paul adds, this testimony, Titus, is true. <laughs> could, could you be a little less direct, Paul? <laughs> if you were going to start bringing biblical order into that kind of environment, what would you do, friend? 
I would be sorely tempted. All right, Cretans, I want all of you to listen to me right now. We've got a list of do's. We've got a list of don't. I'm talking to you. You know, (laughs) come on. But that's not what Paul does. And the Lord speaking through Paul doesn't do that either. It's striking, really. Given what's going down in Crete, the amount of disorder, that he doesn't start with a list of do's and don'ts. Paul starts with the right kind of leaders. It starts with leaders. The second command, look at verse 5, that Paul gives in the second half of this verse, is an expression of obedience to the first command. I left you in Crete that you might put what remained into order. How? How? First and foremost, by appointing elders in every town. Back then and today, if a church is going to live in a way that accords with godliness, it's going to start with the character of her leaders. It's going to start with her pastors. Friend, do you, do you realize that biblical leadership is a precious gift? It's a precious gift. We, we need to remember that, Kingsway. We need to remember that in a cultural climate where authority is just intrinsically suspect. You're an authority figure? Oh. Well, you're an oppressor. You're not trustworthy. You, you must be in it for yourself. That's not a biblical perspective. The Bible is delightfully honest about the corrupting effects of sin. Does sin corrupt Authority and authority figures in this fallen world? Absolutely. Scripture says as much over and over and over and over again. But that doesn't stop the Lord. Please hear this. That doesn't stop the Lord from using authority figures to accomplish his purposes. And that means what? That our fundamental attitude toward authority, toward leaders as the people of God is not suspicion, it's gratitude. And yet, Kingsway, as our leaders go, so will go this church. That's biblical. True in the 21st century, true in the first century. The the, the churches in Crete were troubled with all sorts of false teaching. Again, Quinn's going to preach on that next Sunday. But, but listen, Paul recognizes, what's the point this morning? Paul recognizes that behind every form of false teaching is a false teacher. A man who lacks spiritual integrity. And the opposite is true too, okay? But behind every church where, where sound teaching endures is what? A place where sound teachers endure. Men of spiritual integrity. Pastors feeding the flock with integrity. And that explains why Paul's first move here in Crete isn't to just start shooting down and correcting false teaching. 
He's going to get there, but, but to start there, it would just be a band-aid. You realize? It, wouldn't, it would be a short-term fix. His first move is to ensure that qualified pastors are put into place. Why? Because correcting the effects of false teachers starts with ordaining faithful teachers. And, and faithfulness, pastoral faithfulness, begins not with a pastor's ability to preach an amazing sermon that no one ever forgets or, or organize an incredible program that everyone wants to be a part of. Where does pastoral faithfulness begin? With a man's character. With who he is. Who he is. Verses 5 through 9 in a wonderful way answer some crucial questions about pastors. We're going to walk through these together, okay? First, what is a pastor? Second, who in the world is qualified to be a pastor? And third, what exactly is a pastor supposed to do? So let's start with the first one. Who is a pastor? Who's a pastor? Or rather, what is a pastor? In the New Testament, I hope you know this, but if you don't, this is important. The titles elder, pastor, and overseer are used interchangeably. All referring to the same person, the same office. You can see as much by comparing verse 5 to verse 7, okay? In verse 5, what does Paul tell Titus to do? To appoint elders in every town. But in verse 7, he launches into all the qualifications of who? An overseer. He hasn't forgotten his theme. It's the same office. It's the same person. And in 1 Peter 5, 1 makes this very point. Listen, I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, Peter's talking to elders, shepherd, or literally, pastor, the flock of God that is among you, doing what? Exercising oversight. What do you have in that one verse? We're talking to elders, we're telling them to pastor, and they do it by exercising oversight. <laughs> Interchangeable. So when Paul tells Titus, appoint elders in every town, he's talking about appointing pastors. Men with God-given authority to shepherd the flock of God by leading, feeding, protecting, and caring for the people of God. Think of it this way. If elder is the office, pastor is the job description. And that means that an elder is not a gray-haired board member who keeps the pastor in check. Okay? A biblical elder is a pastor with the authority to care. And Paul highlights two critical aspects of pastoral leadership in verse 5. Okay? First, please notice the word elder is plural, not singular. Why is the word elder almost always plural whenever it shows up in the New Testament? Well, it's, it's because of a plurality, a team 
of pastors is the biblical context for eldership. A a healthy local church isn't built around a a charismatic communicator, okay? A, A healthy local church is led by a plurality of elders with different personalities and different strengths and weaknesses, who who work as a team to pastor the people of God. Notice that. Second, notice Paul tells, we're still in verse 5, Titus to appoint elders where? In every town. He's he's highlighting the, the local character of biblical church leadership. The local character of it. You know, in America, Super Bowl tonight's a great example of this, by the way. How do we tend to think? We tend to think bigger is better, right? Go big or go home. If a church has multiple services and multiple campuses all over Metro Richmond, I mean, wow, God is on the move. That, that's a win. All we need to do is find a really gifted pastor, hire a skilled AV team, and we can live stream that guy and his teaching all over the place. I mean, you might not actually know his name. He may never have met you or recognized you from Adam, but at least he's an engaging speaker. That's not the biblical pattern. Paul didn't tell Titus to find one exceptionally gifted pastor who could travel around the whole island of Crete and take care of all the preaching with his massive exceptional gifting. He told Titus, to appoint a plurality of local elders in local churches in every town. The scope of their ministry? Small. The reach of their reputation? Limited. And yet they are the unnamed ones of whom the world is not worthy. Men who will be welcomed before the throne of God with well done, good and faithful servant. All that's in verse 5. Team ministry matters. Local pastors, local churches, known, knowing matters. What's a pastor? Question one. A local church elder with the authority to care for the people of God. Question two, who is qualified to be a pastor? Who is qualified to be a pastor? Now, before we dive into verses six through eight, I believe I need to pause and answer a question I imagine some of you are thinking right now. But you may not be aware of it. But here's the question. Williams, if I'm not a pastor and I don't plan on ever becoming a pastor, why should I care about any of this? How about you just line up Josh and Chris and Quinn and Caleb and we can all go get coffee and you can just preach the rest of this sermon to them. Well, I am preaching to you guys, and I'm preaching to myself. But here's three reasons why you should really pay attention to verses 6 through 8. First, friend, 
you need to recognize a healthy local church when you see one. A couple weeks ago, I uh, had a conversation with a visiting family looking for a church. This happens all the time, and I will keep it sufficiently anonymous. I'm not calling anybody out here. But one person in the family had this preference. Another person in the family had another preference. Everyone gave me their list, and in about five minutes, I felt like a used car salesman. As if my job was to explain how Kingsway could perfectly satisfy all their preferences. Oh, you want this style of music? Oh, we got that. You want this kind of community? Oh, I'm so sorry the other church didn't offer that. We offer that. That's often how people decide where God is calling them to go to church. Does this church meet all my felt needs? Which has nothing to do with God and nothing to do with your actual needs. Think about that. But instead of saying, which is what I wanted to say, why are you shopping for churches like a spiritual consumer? (laughs) I said, hey guys, to the whole family, what do you think makes a church biblical? That's what I said. Praise God for the gift of (laughs) self-control. What makes it biblical? And they paused for a moment and they, they were just speechless. And they looked at me and said, we've been to a lot of churches. Nobody has ever asked that question. <laughs> really? How would you answer that question? What, what is your present functional answer to that question. It's so easy to evaluate local churches, our own included, with all sorts of metrics that have little to do with what God says is of greatest importance and everything to do with what God says is peripheral. So so what makes a church biblical? What makes a church a place where, where you can make a calling-based commitment, not a comfort-based commitment, as a covenant member, and then stay for the long haul, whether church life is easy or hard. If you don't know how to answer that question, please go into our bookshop this morning (laughs) and pick up a copy of a little book by a guy named Mark Dever called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Go home and read it then come find me, which, tell me what you learned, all right? But I'm going to mention one of them right now because Paul does in verses 6 through 8. A biblical church is led by a plurality of qualified elders. That's on the list. You need to know what a qualified elder looks like so you can recognize a biblical church when you see one. This matters. That's just reason one. Here's the second, okay? You should care deeply about who is qualified to be a pastor because it will profoundly shape what you expect from your pastor. 
Is a man qualified to be a pastor because he has a massive relational capacity? Is everyone's best friend, never forgets your birthday, visits every member in the hospital, is always available by phone, never makes you wait for a text message, has solutions to all your life problems, a fun, buoyant personality, and went to a top-notch seminary? (laughs) I love you, Mercy. (laughs) Oh, the kinds of things you could only have going on in sermons when you've grown up in the church and have close friendship. None of those things make the biblical list of qualifications. But they often make our personal list. And that's really dangerous for two reasons. I'm so grateful it's really quiet in here right now. If, hear me, if who you want your pastor to be is not aligned with who God wants him to be, one of two bad things will always happen. Either the pastor will give in to the fear of man and start doing whatever he has to do to keep you happy and giving and here. Or you will bounce from church to church to church, claiming you were called by God, but in reality, perpetually dissatisfied with leadership. What, what is God's heart for us, Kingsway? That, that we would read this list of qualifications here and, and our hearts would cry out, yes, that is what I want my pastor to be. That's who he has to be. That's what I'm looking for. That's what I'm praying for. That's what I'm expecting and desiring because that's what God's told me to expect and desire. I don't want him fundamentally to meet my felt needs. I want the example of his life, the content of his teaching to point me to Jesus. I want a visibly godly man more than I want an exceptionally gifted man. Because I know in the long run, it's the example of his godliness, not his giftedness, that determines whether the Lord will use that man to help me become more like Jesus. That's reason two. And finally, you should care deeply about verses six through eight. Because the essential qualifications Paul lays out here for being an elder actually define spiritual maturity for every man of this church. Did you catch that? It defines spiritual maturity for every man in this church. Yeah, brothers, I'm talking to you. (laughs) God wants to have a little word with you this morning because this is a call to arms for every man in this room. Verses six through eight define the kind of man God is calling you to be. I don't know what kind of man your friends at school want you to be. I don't know what kind of man when you were growing up, you felt like your dad wanted you to be. I don't know what kind of man in your mind you wish you were and are always trying to become and where you got that definition. But this morning, God wants to remind you who he has called you to be. And the joy that comes with that. And the grace the gospel gives for that. I love the fact Paul starts this list in verse 6 with, if anyone. If anyone. 
by the power of the Spirit, what's his point? The benchmark isn't unattainable or unreachable or, or reserved for the rare specimen of man who rises above the level of mere mortals. No, no godly man should count himself out from being used by God to shepherd the flock of God. And verse 6, look there, establishes three areas of evaluation. Three areas, okay? First, consider a man's personal character. Is he above reproach? Is his reputation in the church one of spiritual integrity? Not hypocrisy. Fabidiana Buile writes, being above reproach means that an elder is to be the kind of man whom no one suspects of wrongdoing or immorality. People would be shocked to hear this kind of man charged with such acts. Being above reproach does not mean that he maintains sinless perfection. Praise God! (laughs) It means his demeanor and behavior over time have garnered respect and admiration from others. He lives a life worthy or consistent with the calling of God. Consider his character. Second, consider a man's marriage. What does Paul say? Titus, is he a husband of one wife? Paul is not saying that single men or anyone who's ever been divorced are automatically DQ'd from eldership. I think a more literal translation of that phrase in Greek is very helpful. Literally, he's saying, Titus, is he a man of one woman? If he's married, is his marriage marked by purity and fidelity and covenant loyalty? Why? Because a man who cannot care for his bride is certainly not ready to care for the bride of Christ, the church. Third, consider a man's family, character, marriage, family. If a man has children, we're still in verse 6, the character of the family says a whole lot about the caliber of the father. Are his children, verse 6, believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination? I'm convinced his children are faithful is a much better translation of the underlying Greek word here for several reasons. Faithful, not believers. Why? This word is translated both ways throughout the, Old Test- the New Testament, so you have to choose what's, what's the intended meaning here. And I think the right translation is faithful here for several reasons. One, no parent is able to make their kids believers, elders included. But furthermore, just look at the verse. If, if they are believers and Paul's insisting on that, why then does he add that as believing children, they also have to be known for not being given over to debauchery and insubordination. You you can't be a genuine believer and be characterized by debauchery and insubordination. You have more questions? We'll talk later about Greek. But for now, what do faithful children look like? Faithful children are submissive, at least at a behavioral level, to their father's authority. In other words, Paul's saying, And elders' children should not have a reputation for being wild 
or out of control. And he makes that very point in 1 Timothy 3 verse 4, parallel passage. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church, right? So we're evaluating what? A man's character, his marriage, his family. But but what exactly does that phrase above reproach really mean, Paul? That can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. I mean, does that mean he's never had a false accusation thrown at him that tarnishes his reputation in the world? What's it actually mean? Well, thankfully, Paul doesn't just say, you pick, drive whatever truck you want through above reproach. He defines that by giving us a list of behaviors that have to be put off in verse 7 and put on in verse 8. And the Lord reminds us at the beginning of the list, look at verse 7, why being above reproach is so important. It's important because a pastor isn't managing a corporation. He's God's steward. He's God's household manager. He's a pastor is a man who's been entrusted with caring for the household of God to the glory and praise of God, which means pastoral ministry isn't an exercise in self-fulfillment. It's a holy responsibility to uphold and nurture and protect the precious bride of Christ. It's not about me and my feelings of personal satisfaction. It, it's about him. And this list of put-offs and put-ons that we're going to dive into quickly here is is worthy of careful study. Again, because it defines maturity for every man in the church. But I'm going to move quickly for the sake of time. But I'm also going to mention a passage of Scripture for each one. Write these down if you take notes. Because each passage I mention shows us how is this specific fruit of godliness in a man's life connected to the gospel? How's it connected to the gospel? Why? Because only the power of the gospel, of Christ and him crucified, can actually produce these virtues in a man's life. Anything else is just fruit stapler. All right? So here goes the list. Put-offs, verse 7. First, he must not be arrogant. He's not impressed with himself or chasing his own glory. He's a man captivated by the glory of God. He's a humble man. Why? Because he knows that there's nothing he is, nothing he has ever achieved that is not solely due and solely explained by the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. He's not arrogant because he believes the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1.30 And because of him, God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, not arrogant. He must also not be quick-tempered. A qualified elder is patient under duress. That's crucial. Not easily provoked. When sinned against, not prone to retaliate in kind. He's he's like the Lord, who's what? Slow to anger. But it's not a personality thing. It's because he believes the gospel. 2 Peter 3 verse 9. 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, to some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. According to his promise, we are waiting. Opposite of quick temper. We are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He must not be a drunkard. Guys, that means more than he must know how to hold his wine. All right? It means he must not be enslaved to lawful pleasures. Think about that. He's a man under the persistent influence of the Holy Spirit, not some other substance. And he he handles areas of Christian freedom with, with great care, asking not, What am I entitled to do, you legalistic? No. How can I live in a way, Christian freedoms included, that builds up my brother? That builds unity? That nurtures the people of God? Because it's not about me. But he's not a drunkard, not because he's a teetotaler or straight-laced. He's not a drunkard because he believes the gospel. Psalm 4, verse 6, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. He must not be violent. He follows a Savior who who came to bring peace and works for peace, contends for peace. In every situation, a a persistent gentleness, even toward difficult people, characterizes his relationships. When, when other people hurt him, he's quick to forgive. Not easily offended. Doesn't get bitter or pile up grudges. He doesn't Subjugate the flock. He serves the flock. Not violent. Why? Because he's just a passive, laid-back, chill kind of guy like his dad and grandfather. No. Because he believes the gospel. 1 Peter 3.13 Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. He's also not greedy for gain. David Mathis writes this, The pastor who drips love of money, subtle as it may be, tells his church and the world that having God is not enough. Added to that, those who love money, Jesus says, do not truly love God. Rather, we need leaders who show the church and the world that God, not money, is our refuge and hope and safety and comfort and peace. Amen. Amen. A qualified elder should have a reputation for generosity with his possessions and his time and freely lays it down to serve other people. Unselfishness marks his relationship to the stuff of this world. Why? You know what's coming. Because he believes the 
gospel. Yeah. Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Those are the put-offs, verse 7. How about the put-ons in verse 8? Look there. A qualified elder must be hospitable. The, the way all of us, all of us, hear me, welcome one another into our homes really is one of the best litmus tests for sacrificial love. An overseer delights in, in using his home to bless others. And, and hear me, guys, it's not because he's married to Martha Stewart. Why does he practice hospitality? Because he believes the gospel. Romans 15, 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. He believes the gospel. He, he must also be a lover of good. That, that means his affections are, are directed toward what God says is good and true and, and beautiful. And he loves he delights in, in doing good to all men, especially of the household of faith. But it's not because he's a passionate extrovert. It's because he believes the gospel. Psalm 63 verse 5. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wing, I will sing for joy. That's why he's a lover of good. Why, why is he self-controlled? Because he believes the gospel. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, Galatians 5. Why is he upright? Because he believes the gospel. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. First John 3. Why is he holy and disciplined? Because he believes the gospel. Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Titus 2, 14. Put all this together and what do we see? The kind of man who is above reproach, who puts off the verse sevens and puts on the verse eights, he is not just a nice guy. Remember when I told a professor in college who thought I was going to go to medical school and do great, amazing things, that I was going to become a pastor. First response, wow, Matthew, um, that's nice. Pastor's not just a nice guy. A pastor is a man who believes the word of the gospel and embodies the implications of the gospel. That's Paul's point. He's, he's a living example of the truth that accords with godliness. Or, or as Paul summarizes at the beginning of verse 9, look there, verse 9. He's a man who what? Holds firm to the trustworthy word as taught. The true test, Christian, 
for whether you, not just pastors, you, all of us, are holding fast to the word of Christ, which is what? The good news of who Jesus is, all he's done to accomplish salvation for mankind. The true test of whether you are holding fast to that is not what you say you believe with your mouth, but the character of your life. Does your life display the fruit of the gospel? That's the test. That's all Paul's requiring of elders because it's all God has called all of us to. That's the kind of man who's qualified to be a pastor. Here's our last question, and this one will be brief. What in the world is a pastor supposed to do? (laughs) I love it. I really do. And I don't mean this in a coy kind of snarky way. I really do love it when people come up to me on Sunday morning and say, hey, I don't know how to ask this without sounding like a jerk, but what do you do outside of Sunday? Like, once you've preached, I mean, do you play golf? I mean, what do you do? Um, what else is on the job? You know, and it, I love that. If you're wondering that, just come find me this morning. I'm happy to share, as are our other elders. Um, but I think part of that, what that reflects is, it's hard to know what somebody is supposed to do until you've tried to do it. But I don't recommend trying to be a pastor just to figure out what I'm supposed to do, okay? Thankfully, for pastors and non-pastors, God has given us his word to show us what we're supposed to do. What a gift. In the second half of verse 9, Paul connects, hear me, he, he connects the character of a pastor's life with the content of his teaching. Think about that. You can't separate the character of a pastor's life from the content of his teaching. Hypocrisy tries, hypocrisy separates those things, right? Spiritual integrity unites those things. And the reason he has to be above reproach, holding fast the word of life, look at verse 9, is why? So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, let's be really clear here, okay? The call to give instruction and sound doctrine for a pastor starts, what? With the personal testimony of his life, a la verses 6 through 8. But it doesn't stop there. What Paul's getting at here is no, you know, preach the gospel through your life and if necessary, use words. No, not at all. A faithful elder uses his mouth to declare both the truth of the gospel and the kind of life that is consistent with the truth of the gospel. That's the call. He does it through private conversation. He does it through public preaching. Instructing the church in sound doctrine is the primary work God has called a pastor to do. Question for you. Is that at the top of your list? Is that at the top of your expectations? Is that at the top of what you are looking for when you're discerning, is this a biblical church led by biblical qualified elders? Is sound doctrine, instruction in sound doctrine, 
giving the sense of the word. Is that at the top? There may be all sorts of things you would like me to do, friend. And I actually don't doubt that a lot of them are probably really good. But please remember what God says I am primarily called to do. We are charged to give you formative and corrective instruction and sound doctrine. That's the call. To, to take God's word in one hand, your life in the other hand, and to say with the gentleness of a mother, the authority of a father, brother, sister, do you see why this gospel requires you to live this kind of way, not that kind of way? That's the job. There's no pastoral vision in the New Testament for men who say a bunch of nice sounding things from the pulpit and then let the people of God do whatever they want to do all the rest of the week in the name of love. Giving instruction and if necessary, correction, sound doctrine means we call you as the people of God to walk in a manner worthy of God. And for us to do that is not to be heavy-handed or authoritarian. That is biblical leadership, King's Way. That's faithful pastoring. That's what a pastor's supposed to do. That's the job. And to that end, I think I would be remiss as we conclude if I did not honor the men who labor alongside of me and pastoral ministry in this church. This is not the whole point of preaching this text. I hope that is abundantly clear by now. But Chris and Josh and Caleb and Quinn, this room is thankful for you guys. Because you guys are this kind of shepherd. Thank, thank you for being men of character. Thank you for being men who honor God in your marriages. Thank you for honoring God in your parenting. More, more than anything else, thank you for being men who believe the gospel. And for showing me and this entire church through the way you live what it looks like to walk in a manner consistent with that gospel, worthy of that gospel. And I think we would do well to conclude, before we sing, share the Lord's Supper, by just pausing here to, to pray for these guys. Can we do that? All right. They don't know this, and this is rather spontaneous. But if you're an elder in this church, wherever you are in the room, could you stand? And if you're close to these guys, just gather around them. We're going to pray for them, okay? If you can't get to them, that's okay. <laughs> Meeting's not done. But we're going to pray. The obvious in terms of shepherds 
and this is going to have to be quick so I don't get emotional. But there is a young man that God called who faithfully took up the responsibility to care for and love this church. And I have watched him for 10 years, as have you if you've been here this long, of a man who cares for, loves, takes with him wherever he goes, the people of this church, who works beyond ours diligently and is a gift from the Lord. And that is Matthew Williams. We thank God for you. You are an example to this church and your example to these elders. And we give thanks for your example. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Thank you, buddy. All right, let's pray. <laughs> let's pray. Uh, Lord, we, we do not want to be a people who fail to live in a way that is consistent with sound doctrine. We want to be people that live and walk worthy of the gospel. Lord, to that end, we, we pray, I pray, on behalf of this whole body right now, for myself, for my fellow elders, Lord, we ask that you would please keep us faithful. We pray you would keep us humble. We pray you would keep us faithful to our wives, faithful to our kids, men who love you with all our hearts. Lord, I ask that those things would mark the pastors of this church for decades when I am long and gone and dead in a dusty grave somewhere, God, that faithful shepherds would be the legacy of King's Way. Ultimately, Lord, we ask for that because we know they are your chosen means of helping all of us walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And Jesus, thank you as you call them in a primary way to these things and, and every man in this church to these things, that in all of these things, we can know you, Jesus Christ, perfectly practice all of these things. You alone, Jesus, are the great shepherd the perfect shepherd. My hope is in you. This pastoral team's hope is in you. Our church's hope is in you. You alone are our hope, God. We love you. We thank you for the gift of biblical leadership, and we pray that you would keep our collective eyes on you, Jesus, our only hope, the best leader who will get us safely home. We ask in your name. Amen. Amen. If you're not already, let us stand and sing to Jesus Christ, our only hope. <laughs>